Leading into our discussion here, one of the things that kind of strikes me, uh, especially for a Red Sox fan your age, is that we've got now, I think, pretty much an entire generation of Red Sox fans who have come of age and are serious Sox fans who now don't know or don't have like a firsthand experience of what it was like before 2004 and the utter desperation. And I find that fascinating that, that now you have hundreds of thousands, if not maybe millions of Red Sox fans who don't have that chip on that shoulder or the neurosis following them around. And what's that like as, as a Cub fan of 41 years? It's a privilege. <laughs> um, I mean, it's, it's, it's certainly strange. I mean, as a, as a Boston sports fan in general, I have seen every single one of my teams win a national championship in my lifetime, and I'm 25 years old. My grandfather uh, is in his late 70s, and he's seen the exact amount of championships as I have seen. Uh, it's, it's certainly uh, quite strange, but I'm, I'm very grateful and uh, appreciative that I've gotten to witness so many absolute legends uh, play up in Boston. And uh, even that, that, that golden era of Red Sox baseball, like that 2004 to 2007, like, some of the best players, some of the most fun players. I mean, that was like my peak fandom right there with, you know, Schilling and Martinez and Ramirez and Ortiz. And, and it was, it was a, a great squad and, and the idiots, uh, mm-hmm. they affectionately call themselves. I mean, that's a, it's a, it's a fun time. And it's just like peak childhood right there. It's peak summer. It's peak baseball, peak fandom. Um, but I don't know what it's going to be like. I mean, I, I pray that we, you know, we have a good season this year at whenever the season does begin. Um, and that we continue on the trajectory we have had. We've been consistent. I think people expect the Red Sox to consistently win. Our ownership group has has spent. Um, you know, I have, I have optimism in, in Hein Bloom uh, in, in his mind um, in, in bringing this 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 new perspective to how we're going to operate. And you know, we demand success now in Boston. I don't know if if an ownership group would be able to go 86 years again without being run out of the city. Oh yeah, yeah. It. Uh, I mean, that's. It- I think everybody at least knows 86 years is a baseline of unacceptable, which it should be for pretty much any team, honestly, but especially one in a market like Boston. And yeah, I, I do think that Heim Bloom uh, obviously has the bona fides with all the years he spent with the Rays and keeping them in contention. Uh, do you feel like if hat with the season being on pause the way it is right now, is it kind of a weird feeling going into that because this was also going to be just a weird feeling? weird feeling going into the season in general as a Boston Red Sox fan this year after the Mookie trade and not really knowing like where the overall direction of the team is going for the next couple of years. Yeah. I mean, it, it kind of uh, is a little bit of a distraction because you, you're not thinking about that, that you're, you don't have Mookie there. Um, the Cora allegations and, and his punishment kind of quickly entered the, the spotlight and quickly exited. Um, and that was a big discussion. And, and, you know, as a Red Sox fan, selfishly, I'm grateful that, you know, none of our past successes and in, in, in most recent World Series uh, was tainted um, or that it should be. Uh, but no, it is, it's certainly weird entering this season um, with just so much uncertainty as to what the Red Sox are going to be focusing on moving forward. Uh, who of this core is going to is going to remain for, for the long run? Um, even players who are like icons and legends from my childhood, like Pedroia, like what is left in, in, in his career? Um, and, and does he have anything left in his tank? And, uh, it's, it's, uh, I think, you know, obviously I, I want baseball to resume as quickly as possible, but as a Red Sox fan, if I never have to see Mookie Betts play in a Dodgers Jersey, I mean, I won't be that. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. That, that, um, uh, 
that would be the most amazing thing in the world. Like if, if the season got bagged somehow and then Mookie Betts hit the market, uh, I'm sure that there is at least some form of Boston sports talk radio that is thinking, you know, if they, if they signed him uh, when he hit the free agent market after that, then they wouldn't have this big luxury tax hit. They would have reset. They would have made the room for him. And suddenly they would be anointed as the genius of all geniuses because of this really, really awful circumstance. Which I think there's a lot of Boston fans with that optimism. I don't know if it's true, but it, there's a lot of people who I think are, are hopeful that somehow Mookie does find his way back. I mean, he's such a charismatic player, a five-tool player, one of the best players of this generation. To let him go, I mean, that's a it's a sting. Um, yeah. And he's going to have a great career wherever he ends up next, and, and he'll bring a ton of fun and spunk to Los Angeles. And if the season does resume, and when it does resume, I mean, watch out for the Dodgers. Yeah, le- legit, like... Outside of Mike Trout, Mookie Betts is almost definitely the best player or one of the two or three best players in the game. And, yeah, wherever he goes, uh, like he's someone that I want to watch. And the fact that both he and Trout would be in the same city this year was something that was kind of exciting me, thinking of kind of both sides of L.A., how they'd play off of those two generational talents back-to-back. Yeah. Uh, if I can circle back for a second. So so you are buying into the uh, the – no, the uh, conclusion that the league office has, has spread that it was the the rogue video monitor guy and nobody else uh, involved. I mean, it's uh, <laughs> as a Red Sox fan, I do want to buy into that that it was a rogue. I mean, it, like logistically, is it just one person who is part of it, and, and should this should only be one person punished on this? It's really hard to believe in any organization that someone's operating that isolated. Um, you know, I mean, you're asking a tough question because you're 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 pushing my fandom and you're pushing my mind. And usually, I try to keep those separate. And as a fan, I say, yep, it was one person. That's it. The Red Sox are innocent. Cora takes a year off, uh, and the Red Sox are good. They're a good team. We didn't cheat. We didn't break any rules. Uh, but logically, I mean, is it is it likely that it was just one person, just one video board guy who knew about this that none of the players knew, none of the other supporting staff knew, uh, you know, Roanoke didn't know, none of the base coaches knew. I mean, I don't know. I it's, I find that hard to believe, but that's what the commissioner put out, and I and I guess we'll just take that as is, and and mm-hmm. not. I won't ask too many questions as a Red Sox fan. Yeah, as a Red Sox fan, I I totally understand that because it's one of the four best days of your life, I would imagine, <laughs> as, as a baseball fan. Uh, yeah, my, my thoughts on that are that I can definitely buy into the idea that it was not nearly as dire as the Houston, uh, you know, beating the trash can with baseball bats circumstance yeah. was. Uh, I do think this very much reeks of Rob Manfred kind of seeing the news of the day as an excuse to say, OK, let's just kind of get this done and move on and hope no one asks any more questions, which when baseball does that, usually means that we're kicking it down the road to a point where when it blows up again, it'll be even worse. So, yeah. But, yeah, uh, I, I agree with that perspective on it. I mean, I think Manfred definitely is looking for the, the path of least resistance. Um, and from a PR perspective, if, if you absolutely blow this up and, um, you know, make the Red Sox look as guilty, uh, I mean, even the Astros uh, investigation was botched and, and, and mm-hmm. I don't think anyone yeah. That and some thinks that that was a fair analysis of how the situation went down and in the lack of suspensions there um and even just that that that, that championship has has an asterisk on it and, and you know the commissioner hasn't really even acknowledged that aspect of it so you know manfred is certainly a strategist and he's a businessman at heart and he's gonna do what's best for the business of, of major league baseball whatever he thinks that is um and in his essence i mean he thinks that 
letting the Astros, you know, get off uh, with, with just a little <laughs> slap on the wrist and, you know, making uh, Cora and, and, and the camera guy, the, uh, the, uh, the troublemakers in, in Boston and, and leading it at that is, is, is it's certainly risk averse, um, whether or not it's smart and, and how that plays into the long-term integrity of the game and, and how other teams and, and the future people who are going to be making these decisions um, down the line, look at that as, as precedent, you know, that makes me concerned for the integrity of the game moving forward. This is a, an ugly precedent to set for baseball. Um, but you know, it, it is what it is. And, selfishly as a Red Sox fan I'm glad that you know it didn't it didn't make us look too terrible uh, as a baseball fan though, I look at the ass situation and it's a, it's a heck of a disappointment it's it's a disservice to the game and a disservice to the to the athletes who go in their day in and day out and, and work their tails off and um, and fight for those contracts and, and for those bonuses and and to have all of it tainted with with so much mystique as to what actually happened and what could have been I mean it's a it's a travesty in so many ways yeah, and and literally, I think in terms of the Astro situation, literally everybody in baseball, every player in baseball who is not a Houston Astro agrees with you at, the, at that point. Yeah, Which I would think maybe some Houston fans could agree with me begrudgingly, but I think they probably would agree. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which is not a bad place to be if you, if you and say Mike Trout and Anthony Rizzo and Javi Baez and and Xander Bogarts are all on the same side. That's yeah, usually a good sign, I think overall. Yeah. And. Uh, it's tough. Because, I mean, I, I do look at what the Astros did for the city, especially post that hurricane um, and that Houston strong. I mean, it, it did have some of the same echo as the Boston strong of, of 13. Um, and so I was excited to see them win when they did, uh, knowing how important it was to this city. Um, and that shouldn't be taken away from the city and that the impact they had on the community shouldn't be taken away. We can't forget that they might have, you know, cheated their way there. Um but what they did for the city of Houston in the aftermath of that tragedy uh, was poetic and powerful and, and really helped uh, bring that city back together and, and brought pride to the entire Houston community. And so I give them I give them credit for that. And I do want to just you know, acknowledge that despite all of the all of the BS that they that they started with this mess, um, they did do a lot of good for the city of Houston during what was an incredibly tough year after Harvey. Yeah, and I could absolutely, from an Astros fan standpoint, similar to what I mentioned a couple of minutes ago, understand that as an Astros fan, this is your peak moment as a baseball fan. And, and anything that kind of taints that or kind of calls into question the legitimacy of it, that's an emotional issue. And I, I completely understand why they would fight with all of their, their power and, and all their mental energy to still hang on to the joy they experienced seeing the Astros take it all. In, in spite of what we've all learned uh, in retrospect, what was really going on in what was, after all, as we should also remember, was a hell of a World Series, too, in 2017. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that seems like a good enough jumping off point to do the uh, intro for the episode. So this is the Three Strikes You're Out podcast, the Outsports Baseball podcast, part of the Outsports Podcast Network. Episode number 26, the Billy Williams episode of the Three Strikes You're Out podcast. My name is Ken Schultz. I am a contributing writer to Outsports, Baseball Prospectus, and Cubs Den. Also, stand-up comedian back in the days when laughter was a thing, I guess. <laughs> we'll refer to it this week. The other voice you are listening to on this episode of the podcast is the minor league baseball specialist for diversity and inclusion and a member of BEQ Magazine's 40 LGBTQ Leaders Under 40, Ben Pereira is joining me this week. And 
last week, uh, we had uh, Jeff Lance on, who was the communications director for MILB, discussing in great detail kind of how the pandemic and the coronavirus situation has largely affected their negotiations for a new agreement with Major League Baseball. This week, we're going to be focusing on how the pandemic and the pause that the sports world is on is affecting a huge MILB effort to spread pride throughout the entirety of minor league baseball. And Ben Pereira, you, sir, are at the head of that effort. And thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm excited to uh, have this conversation. Yes, I'm, I'm thrilled to have you on because, uh, yeah, it, we've written about you a couple times over the past couple of years now at sports. Uh, and you've been doing just a hell of a job with MILB, especially over the past year. At, uh, I went back at the story that we wrote about your inclusion on the, the magazine's list of 40 under 40. And just to look up the numbers, last year you oversaw 71 different Pride Nights in 34 states across this land of ours. Uh, so I guess I'm going to start with asking uh, – do you know, have you uh, had enough settled on a number for how many were supposed to be on the schedule for 2020? Yeah, so we, we, we had seen uh, 81 teams uh, join our pride campaign again this year. Every single team who hosted last year uh, was hosting again this year, with one exception, with the uh, relocation of New Orleans to Wichita. They wanted to wait a year before uh, exploring a pride activation there, given getting their feet wet and being acclimated with new community partners. Um, and that was, a, that was definitely a big win for us to see that most of these teams, all of these teams, hosted the Pride Night successfully, uh, and all of them said that this is worth doing a second time. Um, you know, we, we were able to get a 16% increase in teams this year with uh, 81 teams and 85 events with a handful of clubs uh, hosting more than one Pride Night, which Ooh. that would have been pretty cool and, and some new historic precedent for Pride Night. Oftentimes, uh, Pride Nights in, in Major League Sports is, is one day a year, uh, typically in June. You know, our club in Hartford was going to do three. Our club right. in Daytona was going to host two. Um, we've had some teams who are planning on doing a game day event and then a community event. Uh, so, I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely a bummer to not have the season the way it's, it was scheduled to be. Uh, and, you know, we're, we're, we're working through the fluidity of this, um, this crisis and this pandemic. Uh, but we definitely want to make sure that Pride is still celebrated, um, as many other community events that are going on across the country that are being canceled still want to make sure their events are celebrated. For a team like the Yard Goats, then, who you say were celebrating three different Pride Nights, is that like... Were they scheduling it as just Pride Night with then a sequel, kind of like a Pride Night 2 Electric Boogaloo? Or were there, <laughs> I have to work in an early 80s reference, it's in my contract, but uh, or were they kind of scheduling different specific Pride Nights uh, uh, on their calendar like that? It, it wasn't specific Pride Nights. It, it was just they wanted to reiterate that throughout the season, they wanted to ensure that the LGBTQ community always felt welcome in Hartford. And Hartford is um, really one of the best minor league clubs in terms of their community commitment. Uh, you know, they hosted an event last year, um, late, and I want to say October, November, when the Supreme Court was ruling on some of the workplace protections for the LGBTQ community. They hosted a roundtable community panel with their attorney general. Um, so their commitment has been... Uh, truly holistic um, to the LGBTQ community. They have permanent signage in their ballpark. Uh, they're planning on having some on-field activations uh, this year with players involved. Uh, so, I mean, they were they wanted to do three Pride Nights because they wanted it to just be considered normal that you can have more than one Pride Night. Uh, you know, our COPA campaign is, is quite successful, and most of those teams, do all of those teams who host COPA Nights host more than one COPA Night. 
And so Mike, the GM up in Abramson, was like, why is that not the same precedent for Pride? Why do we only do one game of the year for Pride? Let's do more than one. Um, it's a little bit daunting because most teams don't do that. Uh, so he was going to be setting a precedent there. He hosted two last year, wants to up it to three this year. Um, our, our team in Daytona, they had a different lens to each Pride night. They were going to do one in June, one in August. The one in June was going to be more focused on the LGBTQ community who called Daytona home. Um, so the people who were natural residents there in August, they wanted to focus on the students in the greater area uh, and make this more of a young people event um, for that Pride night. And, uh, you know, we'll see. We'll see what happens. I love that. In, in a town like Daytona, that makes a ton of sense, that, uh, especially with all the students that descend on it at various parts of the year at, at, in obviously much more normal times for uh, beaches or for college or things like that. That that's really a, a smart idea on their part to reach out to that population. And, and it also hits on a lot of what I talked to with Jeff last week in terms of that's also how you grow the game. And specifically within our community, that's how you grow the game. That yeah. It's not about appealing to the LGBTQ community. Now it's about kind of making sure the next generation knows that they are the gates are open and you are very welcome to be a baseball fan and to attend a minor league baseball game that, that celebrates you. I think that that's a phenomenal decision on their part. Um, do you have recollection or did anyone inform you going in before you took the job, how many pride nights throughout, uh, minor league baseball there were? Um, I'd have to go back and look. I do know the number. I want to say it was in, um, the thirties. Okay. So it was a huge increase from 26, from 2017 to 2018 and then 2018, 2019. Uh, I want to say in 2017, there's approximately like 20 pride nights happening, uh, and then you just saw a massive increase year after year because, um, you know, minor league baseball is a kind of organization where they learn from their neighbors. Uh, and so once one team does a great Star Wars night, all of a sudden you see Star Wars nights across the country. Uh, and so Pride Nights became kind of the norm and, and, and it had caught success in a lot of different markets. And I think there was a little bit of trepidation initially with some clubs and that like, does this make sense? We're more rural, we're more Southern, we're more conservative. Like, how is our community going to respond to this? And um, you know, I, with last year as an example, I mean, all of those concerns are null and void. I mean, there wasn't any markets that had any issues with Pride Nights, and particularly it was some of the more rural conservative ones that actually did better. And that's because, you know, in those markets, the community might not always feel seen. They might not always have those opportunities where they can go out and celebrate being their authentic selves. Where, you know, if you're in Brooklyn, I mean, you got a, a hundred bars to go to and buy Pride Nights and Pride celebrations every weekend during the summer in New York City. Uh, and so you don't necessarily feel a need to go to the Cyclones game to feel recognized. But mm -hmm. if, you're, if you're in Daytona, that might be one of the few events. If you're in Missoula, it might be one of the few events. If you're in Tulsa, it might be one of the few events. Yeah. Uh, and you, as you say, you can make the argument that in those markets, that's where it's most needed and most necessary. And it's it, the best possible news to hear that every single one of them is bringing it back for, for this, well, <laughs> this coming year in theory, uh, but definitely next year and years down the road as well. Yeah. Uh, it's and, not going away. It's going to continue to grow. Right, right. Which is is such an encouraging development across the country in general, not just across baseball. When you think about it that way, at uh, gosh, thinking of uh, so when 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 are gay people at Coney Island? Well, it could be Pride Night for the Cyclones, or it could be you know Friday. Tuesday. Yeah, I, I think if, if Brooklyn if Brooklyn really wanted to go above and beyond, they'd have their figure out a way to get their Pride Night game on Fire Island. I think that would be. That would be a phenomenal life <laughs> in and of itself. Uh, so kind of to what you're mentioning earlier about how 
there's like one, or it seems like one team takes the initiative of a promotion where it takes off in that particular market and then everyone else notices and get on board. In terms of Pride Nights, is, is there one team in particular that you can think of with that where they held a night like that where it was so successful that brought a whole bunch of people into the fold for you or made, it, made your job easier? Or was it just kind of a, a process that gradually unfolded? Um, so I think the, the real reason you saw a large increase in Pride uh, Nights from 2018 to 2019 is because the league made it a focus and created an initiative and provided the resources and the toolkits for these clubs to be able to host these nights. Uh, you know, I think that there was a lot of clubs who, within the last five years, had had a Pride Night always on their mind, something that they had considered doing, but asked it because they were concerned about doing it effectively. Uh, mm-hmm. They were concerned about offending. They were concerned about you know, creating any negative media attention towards them. And so they said, well, maybe we just don't do it. Um, but once they had the toolkits and the resources and the empowerment from minor league baseball in our HQ office uh, to really take this on and, and to have the support of our office. And, you know, we hold, we hosted numerous calls last year where, whether it be like conversations on, on what to say, what not to say, um, you know, creating activation toolkits as to, you know, what are the, what are some great things we've seen in previous years that have worked on pride nights uh, and then talking through with each team what their activation was going to be. Uh, and if something caused a red flag, like mm, that might not be received well, maybe you should think think this twice or this would be much better if you if you pivoted here, um, consider partnering up with this organization instead of this one. Um, you know, it's I think having the guidance of our league office uh, just reassured some some of our teams. And um, and that's why we saw such a big increase. But. You know, the precedent was set by Brooklyn. So, yes, we laugh like Brooklyn, you know, what do they need to do a Pride Night for? They, you can see gay people on Coney Island on any Tuesday of the year. Um, mm-hmm. But they hosted their first Pride Night back in 2004. So they set a precedent way before it was ever normal to have Pride Nights. And that was before even Massachusetts legalized same-sex marriage. So they were way ahead of the curve. And, and, and they definitely set us on the trajectory to where we are today. Um, and there's been, there's been many clubs who've done a great job with Pride Nights over the past couple of years that you can look at and say that, um, you know, people are now stealing their ideas. Uh, you know, last year we saw a handful of teams wear jerseys. This year we were scheduled to see uh, more than double uh, of those teams wear jerseys because hmm. they recognize that was a cool idea. Let's, let's, have, our, let's have our athletes outfitted in, in Pride gear. Um, so we were, we're constantly learning from one another uh, as a league, as an organization, and, and I think it's one of the best aspects of of minor league baseball is that it truly is a family. I mean, it's, it's your, you're learning from your brothers and your sisters and your peers in the industry day in and day out. Yeah. Uh, my colleague, Don Ennis did a story uh, in the middle of, of pride month last year when the Staten Island Yankees unveiled their rainbow pinstripe jerseys that they're going to wear yeah. on pride nights. And Don hates the Yankees with a fiery passion that I'm sure you can't identify with in any way whatsoever. <laughs> Uh, but I, we, we both agreed that looking at that, it's like you have to tip your hat, hat and go, hey, good on you, Yankees. Like that's I, honestly, the Yankee uniform has never looked better to me than it does in the colors of the rainbow. So yeah, were, I agree. With, uh, without tipping the hand, were there any of the uniforms being talked about this year kind of on that scale where you looked at that and thought that is a hell of a great idea? Yeah, I mean, there was. I, I don't want to share any of the teams that were ho- that were uh, you know going to unveil jerseys because they might still be in the process and they might be waiting for Pride Month to unveil it. And you know, for some teams, they might be holding out hope that they might still be able to have this game and they might want to be creating this big unveiling ceremony. But um, I, I will say that there's quite a bit of creativity. And this year, we were supposed or we're supposed to see the first both home and away jersey uh, be worn um, in Pride. Uh, with with some of our clubs and in the deep south 
Um, mm. So that was a really cool night, and 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 it will happen eventually, be it this season or or next season. Um, but yeah, we've seen a lot of cool jerseys, and and that's that's an exciting trend because it just creates such cool imagery. Um, you talk about hating the Yankees. I mean, I would have never thought that I would be using a Yankees affiliate as my wallpaper, but I had pictures of the Staten Island Yankees wearing their jerseys as my wallpaper for a good couple of months last year because it was a sweet look. And there was some great photography up there in Staten Island, and they got some cool action shots of players wearing those jerseys mid-game. And, um, you know, it made me a little bit of a Yankee fan. And yeah. you know, the Yankee organization, uh, as, as an entire affiliate list, um, all of their clubs, with one exception, was scheduled to host Pride Nights uh, this year. So, you know, I have to tip my cap to the Yankees uh, and their organization for for really driving inclusion from AAA down. Um, you know, even as a Red Sox fan, it, 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 it's, it feels weird to ever salute the Yankees in anything. Mm-hmm. And my 12-year-old self would probably be punching me in the arm right now as I was playing. <laughs> um, but it's true. I mean, the Yankees have done a great job in uh, – one of the clubs that was supposed to join our Pride Night this year, campaign this year, was Pulaski, Virginia, uh, the hmm. Pulaski Yankees. You know, that's a rural market out in rural western Virginia. Um, and, you know, their GM out there was was bold and was like, I want to do this. I want to host this night. It means something to our fans. And she saw what Staten Island did and wanted to do a very similar thing down there. And so I, I the Yankees have done a, a good job, despite the fact that my Red Sox fandom in me doesn't want to give them much credit. <laughs> yeah, I, I think uh, maybe your fandom of humanity wins out in this in this yes, instance. Yes. That's not a bad thing necessarily. And as someone, you know, I, I lived in New York for almost nine years, and you know, as we discussed earlier, it's, it's certainly one thing for Brooklyn to hold, hold a Pride Night and appeal to its LGBTQ community, uh, and it's great that they were, you know, such such a force so early on for for a cause like this. It is entirely another for Staten Island to be holding yeah. such a visible demonstration of pride and to see that it, it is a popular thing and it catches on there as much as it does in Brooklyn. I mean, that's it's, it's not quite deep south, but it is the kind of thing, still the kind of thing that kind of you look at and go, that's that gives me hope almost. Yeah, and that's I mean, there's there were so many pride nights last year that gave me hope. And I think some people forget about Staten Island and how different it is from the other boroughs of New York City. Um, you know, it does have more conservative, traditional tilt to it. Uh, and so them hosting a pride night and being bold and wearing those rainbow pinstripes unapologetically uh, deserves deserves a salute and a tip of the cap. Yeah. And it's it's not just the most conservative borough in New York City, but it also has a justified reputation of electing politicians who occasionally threaten to throw reporters off balconies when they're having an interview. So, yeah, <laughs> it's it, it, it honestly to see Staten Island that open-minded is is a great thing. Uh, was there one any team or any region of the country in particular where you were especially looking forward to holding a, a first Pride Night this year? Um, I mean, I was really looking forward to Pulaski. I mean, I already mentioned that one a little Great bit. One. That one was that one was one club that I was very much looking forward to, just given how conservative that area of the country is. Um, you know, it, it wasn't an easy. It's not an easy application in that part of the country. Uh, another one was Tulsa. Uh, they hadn't hosted a Pride Night before um, out there in Oklahoma. That would have been a really exciting night. Um, you know, th- and those two stand out as, as two more obscure markets that I wouldn't necessarily expected. Uh, another one is actually Orem. Um, uh, that one I was really excited for the, uh, the, um, I'm sorry, not Orem, Ogden, the Ogden Raptors. Oh, wow. Uh, here in Utah. Um, you know, that's a Mormon country, yeah. uh, you know, on, on the cuffs of what had just happened at BYU a few months ago. 
uh, with a lot of the students, you know, being at one point thinking they could be free to be out and then being told to go back into the closet uh, by the administration there at BYU um, to host a pride night in a city just outside of, of Provo um, would have been really powerful. And, you know, I, I salute them for, for joining the campaign. And, um, you know, I look forward to seeing what they do do for their pride night whenever the season does resume. Yeah, one of the athletes we've spotlighted of sports is a BYU runner named Emma G, who wrote a coming out story for us, I want to say about a year, year and a half ago at this point now, talking about being the only out bisexual runner or out bisexual athlete, as far as we know, at BYU. And it is a, an account that is immensely well-written and very honest and also really heartbreaking and gut-wrenching to read. And she kind of did a follow-up for us on the day that BYU announced they were changing their honor code, giving people hope, and then took it back. And so to get to your, your larger point here, the idea that, that in Ogden, Utah, that this could be a thing in the same state where you're having, you're putting students through this. I mean, that is also a big win for our side and, again, for humanity. And, uh, yeah. and humanity needs all the wins we can get right now, honestly. Yeah, and I think you can never underestimate the power of sports. Um, particularly in more conservative areas. I mean, these yeah. sports teams, it, it'd, be, it'd be much easier for them to just throw a bobblehead night together or a bark in the park night together and, and not go down a path that might have some resistance. I mean, almost always a pride night is going to bring some naysayers. Uh, and so to do it in a market that is going to be tough and you know going into it is going to be tough, but to still stick true to your guns because you believe in it and you believe that this is what's important, not only for the community, not only for humanity, not only for your city, uh, but for the game of baseball. I think people think, why are we doing these nights? A big reason we do these nights is to help grow the game of baseball. You know, for, for too long, the LGBTQ community has been marginalized in sports and particularly in baseball. Uh, and this is our initiative to not only um, help the LGBTQ community gain this broader acceptance and, and, and this, this uh, equality movement that's still ongoing and has been my entire lifetime um, as yours, uh, mm-hmm. but also just to, to help grow our game. I mean, that's how baseball is going to continue to grow and adapt and, and, uh, and strengthen itself for the next generation of fans by ensuring that everyone feels they have a place in the ballpark. Yeah. And as we keep growing the game and, and keep, uh, welcoming the LGBT community in all the different parts of the nation that in theory also should make it easier for people to see that this is not just acceptable in all the big markets, the Chicago's, the Boston's, the New York's, the San Francisco's, but when it starts heading into the Ogden, Utah's and uh, the, the more rural parts of Virginia, as you mentioned, I forget the name of the city. I apologize, but Pulaski. Uh, yeah, Pulaski thank you. Uh, that as it gets more accepted in there, when you start seeing it accepted across the entire sport like that, maybe at some point we might have a player realize that it's okay to come out while I'm still playing. And uh, wouldn't that be a thing if, if eventually uh, this leads to that momentous moment in the game's history? Like I, I, <laughs> I, I think of the, whenever that day comes, the, the immense pride we're going to have all of us to, to see something like that happen. And uh, yeah, every one of these I think is, is another little step in the ladder like that. Yeah. And we're getting there. Um, you know, and I know of, I know of a handful of athletes in, in minor league baseball who have been particularly impacted on this on a personal level, whether it be, you know, a family member, uh, a brother or sister. Um, and they take pride in wearing these jerseys and going out there on pride night. And, um, you know, I think 
part of what needs to be dispelled is this narrative that our athletes in minor league baseball are not as accepting as some people think. You know, I think people have this perception of what baseball locker room culture is. Um, mm-hmm. but this is also the millennial generation of players. Yeah. These are players who grew up in a much more progressive mindset towards the LGBTQ community. So the idea of a pride night isn't as uh, is now isn't as outlandish as it would be for some people in the older generation, and particularly, um, you know, as I mentioned, with you know almost every single team in the Yankees organization hosting a Pride Night, with the exception of one, every time you get called up, it's going to be you're going to have a Pride Night, so it just becomes the norm, and and it's to be expected. Uh, and if you are an LGBTQ athlete in college, or you're one of the I'm sure there are LGBTQ athletes in minor league baseball with 160 clubs and 25 athletes on each roster. I mean, it's bound to be uh, at least a handful. Um, Hopefully they see this trend as uh, a sign that they are welcome and that they should not feel ashamed to bring their full selves. Um, And and, and hopefully with these teams wearing jerseys and and, and being unapologetic in their support for Pride Night, you know, we, we talk about the aspect of growing the game for fans, but this is also a big a big thing for players to teach players that this game is for them too. And it's an absolute travesty that we haven't seen a, a queer athlete come out um, mm-hmm. since. I mean, Dave Denson was the only one in minor league baseball who did, um, but we haven't seen it. Uh, and and that's that 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 talks more on the culture of the, of of our sport. Yeah. Um, and this initiative, while it is focused on increasing the fandom. Uh, and, and opening up the opportunity for more fans to to engage with our sport, it definitely has an impact on the players and the psychological and a psychological perception of baseball uh, moving forward for these athletes, uh, and it becomes more normal. And that's that can't be undervalued. Yeah, and it, it's it's opening up the door for history at some point down the road. And this is a very simplistic comparison, but to your point about uh, Pride Nights becoming established established promotions in the uh, more rural and more conservative parts of the country. You know, it was one thing back when the color barrier was broken, for example, Jackie Robinson in Brooklyn obviously went through hell there, uh, but it wouldn't have, uh, you probably think, you can think that it wouldn't have established in baseball as quickly if you didn't immediately then have a few months later, Larry Doby and then Satchel Paige doing it in Cleveland and showing that it could also be done and accepted in a Rust Belt town as easily as it could in Brooklyn, New York. And obviously there, the, the comparison is very surface level there, but I, I think it's also an apt one in terms of showing how uh, a, a gay player could be accepted in, in the Ogdens or the Pulaski's of the world at some point too, by just having these nights and having them become a regular thing and having uh, the community come out and show that they support it like that. I agree. I mean, it's certainly a stark comparison between Jackie uh, and the civil rights movement with players like Dobie and Campanella and, and, and Satchel Paige and what they did for uh, the civil rights movement in this country, let alone the game of baseball. Um, but, but there's there's a parallel there that's fair and that, you know, they helped normalize this perception that black athletes belonged in baseball. They belonged in, in major league baseball. They belonged in the American and the national league. I mean, the Negro leagues existed for many years and, um, you know, for all intents and purposes, was equal uh, in terms of the quality of play as, as Major League Baseball was putting together during that time. Um, but, you know, it, it's, it, it helped change the perception. And that's what these Pride Nights are doing. They're helping change the perception of whose sport this is. Um, you know, what is a baseball player? What is a baseball fan? Uh, and these Pride Nights, you know, challenge some people's norms of, of what that is. And, uh, you know, I think one of the one of the cooler aspects I saw last year when I got to go out to a few games and speak to fans was those who came into the night who 
didn't realize it was pride night or came kind of begrudgingly because they were season ticket holders uh, and then realized like, oh, this wasn't, this wasn't so bad. I mean, you know, they realized that this, these are my neighbors. These are people just like me. Um, and, and these nights help tear down those barriers because oftentimes it is easy for some people um, to segment themselves away from the LGBTQ community and, and, and operate in silos uh, and never have any interaction. And these nights, because it's under the uh, under a baseball night um, and people come together to watch baseball and you're still getting that. You're getting a great game no matter what night of the year it is. Uh, the fact that it's pride night and all of a sudden you have your queer neighbors sitting next to you, um, you just realize that, oh, you're just like me. You're also angry at that at that bad call by the umpire. You're also excited by that home run uh, and you're also enjoying the dollar beer night just as much as I am. I mean, it's just, it helps normalize and bring communities together and that's that's the best aspect of my job is this community aspect. I mean, we help bring people together. Um, and in markets like uh, these more rural markets, it, it's, it definitely helps uh, change perceptions and, and change the narrative as to what the LGBTQ community is all about. And um, it adds another wrinkle to the layers of diversity that the LGBTQ community has, just like every single community in this country has. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that that's, that's great. My favorite parts about everything you just said is the theory that, the entire country could be brought together by Angel Hernandez's horseshit umpiring. This is a campaign I can get behind, I think. It's, uh, honestly, it's, if, if that's what it takes, then keep doing your thing, Angel, I guess. <laughs> so uh, jumping off of that for a second, uh, since you discussed kind of all the, the travels that you spent uh, in, in your job with MILB, uh, do you have a favorite minor league city or minor league ballpark that you visited? Um, that's tough. I mean, I, I, there's not been a, a ballpark that I haven't liked. Uh, and so I will I will tackle that on, on, on three aspects. I mean, ballpark in terms of the history, um, you know, Daytona, just the fact that the, the history of, of baseball in that city um, and the historical nature of that ballpark, uh, it's just it's, – it's a beautiful stadium and it's a really cool, unique – uh, experience and and their brand new turf is beautiful and it makes for great photos uh, and it's a fun time. I mean Daytona is a fun party city and you mm-hmm. feel that ballpark. So that's that's one of my favorites. Nice. Um, the best food, Lehigh Valley. Uh, mm-hmm. Their bacon and 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 the millions of ways they serve bacon there uh, is absolutely immaculate. I love it. I mean they got candied bacon on a stick. I never knew that was a thing I needed in my life. When I was in Lehigh Valley, I mean, I fell in love at first bite. So that's, that is, that they got some of the coolest ballpark food up there in Lehigh Valley. Um, and that's definitely one worth visiting. Uh, and then for the fun, um, you know, we talked about Brooklyn a lot already, but that ballpark is just so unique in that you're in New York City's playground in the background. I mean, you have the roller coasters right behind you uh, and you're right on Coney Island. And so there's just a cool aspect of being there on a hot summer night listening to the people on Coney Island, the roller coaster going down and um, people playing and looking out and seeing the beach. And it's just a really cool experience to watch a game. And uh, those three are, are, are my favorites. And, you know, I could continue going on as to why all the bumpers I visited are, are worth going to. But I think those three stand out for, for the history, for the food and, and for the fun. That is awesome. Yeah. Uh, I have been to Lehigh Valley uh, Back when uh, Ryan Sandberg was managing there, I, I took in a game, and I remember uh, just kind of thinking, it's in the middle of nowhere, but it's still just a really just well-put-together ballpark. Yeah, it's um, beautiful. 
I never made it out to Brooklyn in the nine years I was in New York. It, uh, I was at the other end of the subway line from where it ended up in Coney Island. So I never took like the hour and a half it would have taken to get down there. But at some point, I, I keep visiting friends there. And, and one summer, it, uh, I will make it out because just from the pictures I've seen of it, it looks phenomenal between uh, the parachute ride at one end and then the ocean in the other. You can't have a better setting for baseball than that. Uh, the one that I want to see most, and I don't, I don't know if you've been, uh, where the Salt Lake Bees play in Salt Lake City. Uh, just every picture of that park that I've seen where you've got the mountain vista over the entire outfield, there, there's nothing anywhere in the game that I've seen like that. And it just seems like that you could not find a better spot to put a park other than maybe Coney Island. Uh, have you been to Salt Lake City yet? I've not been to Salt Lake. I've not seen their ballpark, but I, I've seen the pictures, and I definitely echo your sentiment there. I mean, it looks pristine, like to have the mountains on the backdrop. I mean, I guess the cool aspect of minor league baseball is that a lot of these stadiums do have really cool backdrops. Um, you know, Missoula is another one that has a pretty cool uh, hmm. nature backdrop up there. Um, but, yeah, Salt Lake, is, Salt Lake is a really cool stadium, and uh, you, you feel like you're in nature's playground. Nice. That's a great way to describe it. And honestly, if some company hasn't bought out the naming rights, I would suggest Nature's Playground or honestly, Nature's Beehive, considering, you know, the name. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I will have to look up Missoula. I've never checked that one out, but uh, that one I will definitely remember to add to the list. Thank you for that. Uh, and speaking of the list, we are doing every week as on this podcast, as long as social distancing is still a thing, the Social Distancing Book Club. Do you have a baseball book to recommend to the listeners, Ben? Yeah, uh, so I, I I thought about this a little bit, but my favorite one I've read is uh, The Last Best League by Jim Collins. It came out in 2001, and he profiled uh, the Cape League um, in Massachusetts. And uh, growing up in Massachusetts, there's something special about going to Cape League games. I love minor league baseball because it's pure, and you get the pure amateurism and the youthfulness of, of the sport. Um, but the Cape League is that on steroids because there's no billboards. Uh, you know, paper tickets, just a donation. Uh, people just sit out there on their on their chairs and and, and they take in the game and uh, and it's a wooden bat league too. Nice. Uh, so I, I I love the Cape League. It has such a cool, unique community culture um, and something special about Cape Cod in the summer as well. Uh, and it brings out the best athletes. I mean, so many great major league players began their careers in the Cape, and uh, the book is a great profile of what it was like to be there during the summer. And it profiles players and host families and profiles, people who work for the teams. Um, and you just see a holistic aspect of what life is like in the summer on the Cape. And, and, I, and it does a really good job of transporting you to Cape Cod uh, in the summer. And, and if anyone's looking for a little vacation in their book, uh, I recommend that one. Yeah, I, I get the sense that I would be like the, the worst person to go on a gaycation with because if I ever went to P-Town with a guy, I would spend half the time trying to go to Cape League games. And uh, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the way my mind operates, I think. Uh, mine is a similar region this week. I am recommending uh, Faithful by Stuart Onan and Stephen King, which was their day-by-day uh, -day diary chronicling the Red Sox 2004 championship run. And uh, I remember it came out shortly after they, they'd won the World Series, and it was just like, purest happenstance that they both happen to pick you know this year let's let's try doing a day-by-day -day recap to each other and make a book out of it at the end and hopefully something good happens and it turned out it was the most historic season in boston red sox history and it's just a great way to kind of dive into what we mentioned at the top of the podcast the old red sox fan 
mindset where every everything they're thinking of the worst possible thing is about to happen just around the corner. And especially what still sticks in my mind is both of them hate Terry Francona up until the very end of the book. And looking at it now where he is, you know, justifiably sanctified in Red Sox culture, it's yeah. fascinating to think that up until those last four games of the Yankee series, they were ready to can his ass. Uh, but it's, it's, it's just a great read of, of getting through that season and, and realizing what it was like as a fan to hit the lowest of lows right before a high you can't even imagine. And I remember reading it after it came out and thinking to myself that, yeah, geez, if only. And it took, took 12 years, but eventually I got my own version of that. So, uh, so yeah, happy ending overall. Uh, highly recommended at some point. Faithful. Uh, so is there anything else you'd like to plug while I still got you here, Ben? Um, you know, the only thing I want to plug before before I say goodbye here is that, you know, no matter what our season looks like this year, I mean, it's, it's certainly fluid and we're not sure, you know, when baseball is going to begin. Uh, what has been so profoundly um, inspiring for me uh, is seeing that these teams are still making an impact in their community. And I'm going to plug uh, one club here in particular, um, our team in Missoula, who is on uh, the list of the 42, who, who's proposed to be cup in Major League Baseball. They just rebranded to a super cool logo in the Paddleheads. And if you yeah. haven't seen it, Google it. I think they got some really sweet jerseys and gear um, available. But they just announced a campaign earlier this week uh, in which they are raising money um, for local uh, domestic and sexual assault violence victims, particularly during this crisis um, of the coronavirus where, where many people are stuck at home. Uh, we have seen an increase in domestic violence and sexual assaults, and uh, this team is making a, a really big impact in their community, and they're matching uh, $20,000 in, don uh, in donations. Um, and, the re and you can either go and make a donation strictly to uh, the YWCA of Missoula, or you can just go and buy some Paddleheads gear, and they'll match dollar for dollar of all Paddleheads gear that is being bought. Um, up until they hit uh, that match of, of $20,000. I think they're at 4,000 so far, um, but just impressive that, you know, here we are in the middle of a pandemic. This is a club that has so much stress on them as is with so much uncertainty as to when they're going to play baseball, when they're going to be able to get back out there uh, and what their future looks like given the precariousness of the PBA negotiations. And they're still going out there and they're still working hard and they're still figuring out ways that they can make an impact in their community. And that's, I think the beauty of minor league baseball is that we are, we are public servants to our communities and, and uh, what Missoula has done in this initiative is, is nothing short of absolutely powerful and inspiring. Yeah. And it's, it's important to remember too, that, uh, you know, a lot of in, in the grand scheme of what's going on during the coronavirus pandemic, the, the, the hugeness of this cataclysm, this countrywide cataclysm obscures the many problems that are still occurring and as you just said are exacerbated at a local level and it's important to have organizations that know what's going on at the local level and in their community and know that they need to take an initiative to help the people out who are still going through the, these these horrific experiences that a lot of people are kind of not paying attention to because of the overall horrific experience we're enduring as a country and and that's that's a metaphor for just America in general right now is is kind of we we're, we have a national crisis, a national pandemic, but we still have all these problems that individually we still have to cope with. And it's it's important to have these individual organizations at the ground level. And the idea that MLB is thinking of getting rid of and cutting these these organizations that are so tied and so connected to the community is is honestly 
appalling to me. And uh, yeah, it's 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 the idea that Missoula is on one hand fighting for its life, but still knows that they've got to fight for the people in their community that need it most is I, I can't think of a better reason why they should be around as as long as we can have them honestly yeah absolutely i mean these people in, in missoula i mean I, I sat on their 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 phone call talking about their pride night last week uh, and they reiterated to all their pride partners no matter what our season looks like we are here to help you let us know what you need help with let us know how we can amplify your messaging let us know how we can be a partner for you during this uh, and know that we have your back no matter what uh, and that kind of unapologetic partnership there uh, and true commitment to their community um, deserves to be celebrated and they deserve to be kept uh, for yeah. that reason, I think. I mean, these this is so much bigger than baseball. They play such an important role in their communities um, that if, 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 if a city like Missoula or Daytona or Lexington loses their club, they're not just losing baseball during the summer. They're losing true community leaders, and, and that's going to be a travesty for, for many different people, even for people who have never once gone to their games. Yeah. That's, uh, I would say that at this point, yeah, Missoula, I mean, all these teams deserve to be kept because they're important parts of becoming a baseball fan in, in, in your community and, and important parts of establishing a connection between uh, the LGBTQ community and the baseball fandom community. And, and also, honestly, the, I, I can't think of a better way to wrap this than by saying that, yeah, hashtag keep Missoula, hashtag contract the Cardinals. Let's go with that. <laughs> Yes, keep Missoula and keep keep the forty two, and let's let's grow baseball, not cut baseball. Yes, absolutely, and uh, yeah, I, I will close this by saying the same thing I said to Jeff last week that we are rooting like hell for you guys, and uh, and I hope that we get the best possible result from all this whenever the agreement is reached between MILB and MLB. Uh, so yeah. Ben Pereira, it has been a real pleasure. You're doing doing great work. Keep it up, man. Thank you so much, Ken. It was a pleasure being here.